wonder-working stars in the precious... Incredible as they seem, are not the results of mass hysteria. <laughs> You may wish to adjust the dial. You are currently tuned into the wrong station. It was a perfect autumn morning in Jason Donahue's perfect little subdivision when the gray Toyota Corolla parked itself at the end of his block. It was Jason's day off. Jennifer was at the office, Peyton was at school, and Jason was standing at the wide front window of his post-war bungalow, drinking coffee and watching as the dog walkers and nannies made their rounds through his domain. Perfect. Until the Corolla. He'd never seen the car before, and a slight frown puckered his forehead as he watched an unfamiliar young man climb out of the driver's seat. Jason decided there was something about him he didn't like. Average height, average build, late twenties, inoffensive blue button-down and khakis with brown leather sneakers and a brown leather satchel. He looked harmless enough but there didn't seem to be any good reason why he should be in Jason's subdivision. And that made Jason... not uneasy, but alert. It was his neighborhood, after all. His to watch out for. The young man went up to Will Roberts' front door and rang the bell. Mrs. Roberts, Jason had never bothered to learn the names of all the wives, answered the door, and a short conversation followed. Mrs. Roberts shook her head, the man handed her something. She nodded and withdrew inside. Hmm. Some sort of delivery? No, the young man was going up to the next house now. Canvasser? Door-to-door -door salesman? Jason didn't like it. Bothering people at home. The whole point of a subdivision was that people who didn't belong there couldn't just wander in. Nobody answered at the second or third house. And so the fourth walkway that the young man turned down was the one that led to Jason's. His home. His castle. Jason was already waiting in the mudroom from the moment his bell rang, and he whipped open the front door. Whoa! Satchel Khaki Blue Shirt jumped back, surprised by the sudden appearance of a large, bald man in a bathrobe and pajamas. Sorry, uh, can I help you? said Jason. He hoped it was extremely clear from his tone of voice that he would... Not be helping. Hi, uh... The young man composed himself. Sorry to bother you, sir, but if you were sorry, you wouldn't have done it. Well, um, still, my name's Eli, and I'm not interested in what you're selling, Eli. No, it's nothing like that. Um, I'm actually looking for someone? Looking for someone? That caught Jason's attention. He thought of himself as kind of a sheepdog for his community. Missing sheep were a sheepdog's business. 
Alternatively, if this Eli character turned out to be a wolf who was hunting someone in his flock, then that was his business too. He fixed the young man with what he thought of as a hard, no-bullshit stare. Looking for someone? Eli scrambled with a flap of his satchel, which turned out to be full of flyers. Yeah, he said. My brother, actually. He handed Jason a flyer. Um, he went missing a couple years ago. He was, uh... You know, he had a lot of struggles, and... After he went off the grid, we stopped being able to get a hold of him. Drugs? said Jason. A long-haired man smiled back at him from the paper. Yeah, said Eli. Look, I, uh, I don't think he's still with us out there. He was in a pretty bad way the last time I spoke to him, but we mostly just want closure. It's the not knowing that's the worst, you know? Hmm. Yeah. Jason was still staring at that photo. At that face. And we met someone who used to go to meetings with him, Eli continued. You know, N.A. meetings. And they said they last heard he was out in the suburbs around here. So, so you came looking for him. Jason looked up at last. You came looking for your brother. Yeah. Hmm. You know, I gotta say I respect that, kid. Taking your own time out to look for him. That's what family's supposed to do. The kid seemed a bit uncomfortable with the compliment. Thanks, he said. So, uh, ring any bells? Looked like you might have recognized the picture for a moment. Yeah, well, I'm not too sure, Eli. I'm sorry. There were a couple guys out here it could have been back when we first moved into the area. Down by the landfill at the end of Park Lawn Road. It's kind of rough back then, you know? Took some cleaning up. All this. He gestured to the clean lawns and shady trees, at the polished SUVs sitting in the heated driveways. Didn't just happen on its own, you know. One of those guys, was he with a girl? Blonde? Skinny? Jason sighed and shrugged. Ah, I'm sorry, kid, I just can't say. Eli took the disappointment with grace. Ah, uh, well... Maybe it's something to go on. Thanks for taking the time. If anything shakes loose in your memory, that's my number on the flyer. They nodded goodbyes, and Eli went down the rest of the street. And that should have been the end of it. Only, a few hours later, when Jason headed out to take care of some errands, something caught his eye on the way to the Nissan. A flash of sunlight on curved glass down in the gutter. He walked to the end of his driveway and crouched over the brown drifts of Norway maple and honey locust leaves. The cloud shifted above him. The glass cylinder rippled in the sun. A used hypodermic needle. It was an uneasy coincidence. But by the time he and an old hockey buddy were polishing the bar at Ronnie's with their sleeves that evening... He'd already forgotten about it. Scotty, of course, had been there a few hours and a few whiskey shots already, and so when they got on to talking about property values and maintenance, he started laughing halfway through one of Jason's points and almost spit out his beer. That's so funny, Scotty. Uh, just the two of us sitting here talking about this suburban utopia of ours. 
You remember what he used to look like? I try not to. Good. You remember what the en route used to look like back before it was an en route? I think the word you're looking for is truck stop. Yeah, yeah. You remember that? God. You remember that lizard used to hang out round back by the men's room? Skinny blonde. Remember what she always used to say when you tried to take a piss? Jeez, Scotty, can we not? I'm clean and I'm wet, please. I'm clean and I'm wet. Jesus Christ, we're in polite society here. Oh, get over yourself, it's Ronnie's. But then he dropped his voice and leaned in, leering. <sighs> Did you ever, though? Ever what? You know. He pumped his eyebrows. What? No! Jesus, Scotty, of course not. Did... did you? Grinning, Scotty shrugged and turned back to his drink. Oh, Jesus Christ, Scotty. Hey, fifteen bucks is fifteen bucks. You're so cheap I gave her twenty because I felt bad. <laughs> you were a married man. I used a condom. You're a friggin' sicko, Scotty. Yeah, yeah, well, you already knew that about me. Yeah, I figure I did. I shared a companionable moment of silence. But then Jason felt a change come over his friend. And Scotty leaned over his drink with that long and hollow stare Jason had seen him get from time to time. You know, Scotty said. She died just a little while afterward. Overdose, right? I think about it a lot. If what I paid her was enough to... Um, <clears throat> if it wouldn't happened if I hadn't... Hey, Scotty, come on now, get it together, buddy. Listen to me. That's not on you, okay? You know, people like that, they make their own choices. It's nothing to do with you, right? You're an upstanding guy, I know you. You're a pillar of the community. So you made a mistake. Doesn't make you the villain here. Scotty tilted his head from side to side but didn't meet Jason's eyes. He raised a hand and ordered another whiskey. Come on now, Scotty, I mean it. You want to know whose fault it really was? Scotty just stared into his drink. That fucking long-haired skid she was living with down at the park lawn dump. Okay? That's who should have been taking care of her. That's who gets the blame. Okay? Not you. Him. Yeah, you really think so, Jace? I fucking know so, Scotty. Now come on, let's change the subject. Scotty went to the bathroom after that, and when he came back, he was bright-eyed and full of energy again. He was also sniffing a bit, and Jason wondered if maybe he hadn't gone to do a bump of coke, but decided not to ask. He was off the clock, and anyway, Scotty was a good guy. Just going through a bit of a tough time was all, and if he needed a bit of something to help him get through it, well, that was a victimless crime. After a few more fifties and a final round of Jameson's, they settled up and rolled out to the amber-lit parking lot outside of Ronnie's, 
taillights swooped down the highway between them and the Little Caesars and Chapters Indigo on the other side, like red birds diving through the forest at night. It was cold enough that their breath turned the same orange color as the strip mall sodium lights. You sure you're okay to drive? said Jason, fumbling with his own keys. Eh, you know me, Scotty slurred, steadying himself against the hood of his old red pickup. I'm always good. Always good to go. Know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, said Jason, falling into the driver's seat. I'm clean and I'm wet, Scotty shouted. Hey, look, I'm clean and I'm wet. He'd spread two fingers down over his crotch and was thrusting at the cold night air. All right, said Jason, starting the car. Get home safe, you maniac. He shut the door, drowning out the sound of Scotty's refrain as he shakily backed out of the parking lot. The last thing he saw of Scotty was the tall man continuing to thrust at his rearview mirror. It was an easy drive home from Ronnie's, but Jason felt off. He didn't think it was the alcohol. He'd driven home drunker than this, and it had never been a big deal. Uh, but he kept thinking about that skinny blonde woman. The one from the truck stop, the one who had choked to death on her own vomit at the park lawn dump, within two feet of someone who could have helped her if he'd been any less fucked up. And he kept thinking about the other thing as well. Furious, filled with emotions he couldn't understand, he hit the steering wheel. And maybe he was drunker than he thought, because his hand landed awkwardly, and he almost spun out just as he was reaching a curve in the road. And he had to slam on the brakes to keep from jumping the curb and smashing through an electrical box. Inertia slammed him forward. The airbag didn't go off, but because he wasn't wearing a seatbelt, his forehead struck the top of the steering wheel and he saw white light. Fuck. He put the car in park and sat for a minute with his hands covering his eyes, just breathing, feeling that the world wasn't fair. When he opened his eyes at last, somebody was looking at him. Past the curb... Past an amberlit meridian of dry grass, past a chain-link fence crowded with rusted wire barbs, stood a pair of industrial buildings, one of them breathing orange-tinted steam into a light-polluted sky. Someone was standing in the shadows between these buildings, someone gangling and tall. Jason's vision was still blurry from the hit, but he thought he recognized the silhouette. The shadow drifted forward, or the lighting changed. He thought he saw long hair and needle-hardened veins, but no, he was mistaken. No person was that gangly. No person was shaped like that, with a long neck and... He screwed his eyes shut and shook his head, and when he opened his eyes again, his vision was clear and... There was nothing in the alley but a heap of industrial garbage piled by a dumpster. He grunted to himself, put the car back in gear, and drove the rest of the way home. There was another needle at the end of his driveway. He was too tired, and his head hurt too much to deal with it. He told himself he'd take care of it in the morning. He took something for his pounding headache and climbed into bed next to Jennifer. She knew well enough not to stay up when he was out with Scotty. 
Got you well trained, he said. He chuckled to himself as he drifted off to sleep. The tapping woke him. At first he thought it was rain, but no. The sound had just one source, like a single drop falling over and over and over. Water torture. He sat up in bed. An amber light was soaking around the edges of his curtains. And with it, that tap, tap, tap. As he climbed out of bed, an inexplicable fear was dripping down the back of his throat to pool in his belly, cold and thick. He didn't want to know what was on the other side of that curtain, the other side of their ground floor window. He half suspected that he knew already something tall and gangling, with a long neck. But he had to know for sure. With a trembling hand, he reached out and grasped the edge of the curtain. He tried to steady his breathing. A count of one, of two. His heart beat three times between each number. Of three. He flung the curtain aside. It was staring right at him. A sort of bird was on the other side, flightless and taller than a man, and its long, swooping neck was bent so it could tap its beak against the glass. Only the bird was not made from the parts of a bird. Its feet, half buried in the chill soil of his front yard, were long, thin human feet, pale with the cold and ending in cracked, yellowing toenails. Its body was a clump, a tangle of crusted, filthy clothing like you might find next to a mattress beside the train tracks. And what flesh he could see through it belonged to a human torso, but one that was taut and puffy with edema. Its swooping neck was formed of a long, thin arm scarred red with bacterial infections of the subcutaneous fat and wet with popped abscesses. And what he had taken to be its head was a human hand with a hypodermic needle for a beak and more needles that grew from the skin at the back of its wrist to catch the amber light like the halo of a crested crane. He fell back from the glass in silent horror, all but unable to breathe. It leaned in again to tap, tap, tap against the window. There was a gun that they kept in a box on the bedroom bookshelf, and he scrambled for it, knocking Jennifer's self-help books to the floor as his hands shook. Tap, tap, tap. He turned and leaned back against the shelf, leveling the gun with unsteady hands. Tap. 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 He realized there was something like a face hidden in the rank cloth around its body. He caught a glimpse of grinning, rotted gums and a hank of long, slack hair. Baring his teeth, he drew up all his courage and ran for the front door, slamming it open to admit the glaring orange light of the street. The bird tilted its skullless head at him, and he drew back the hammer with a heavy click, and then fired. 
The gunshot echoed down and down the empty streets of his subdivision. No lights turned on. No dogs barked. A night breeze shimmered in the black pine trees of his neighbor's yard. He lowered the gun. He had hit nothing. There was nothing there for him to hit. The next morning, he woke in a tangle of sheets with the bedroom blinds flung wide. The bookshelf was neatly put away. The gun was safely nestled inside its box. Jennifer was making breakfast in the kitchen, already back from dropping Peyton off at school. Ugh. Why'd you open the blinds this morning? He said. So bright. Sweetie, said Jennifer, the blinds were already open when I woke up this morning. She turned, putting a plate of eggs and toast down in front of him. It was garnished with a sprig of parsley and a sliced-up cherry tomato. Jennifer, ever the perfect homemaker. She put a hand on her hip. I guess someone had a good time with Scotty last night. Hmm, he said. Such a lovely man. I wonder why he and Lindsay could ever make it work. The words, clean and wet, popped into his mind. No idea he said. Anyway, she kissed him on top of his head. I'm late for work, and I still have to pick up your dry cleaning. Don't worry. She winked at him. I already called in sick for you. Oh, you're the best doll. No, you are, my big strong man. After she was gone, he popped a couple pills for his hangover, and took something stronger for the headache from his accident the night before. He spent an hour laying on the couch with a damp cloth over his eyes. It didn't help. He sat up, thinking about the syringes, the figure in the alley, the strange dream with the bird. It was all too much. He put his hands over his aching eyes, took a deep breath, and made up his mind. He was a sheepdog. He was a man of action. He needed to go check on something. He got dressed and didn't think twice about arming himself. It was bright outside, even through his mirrored aviators, and because he squinted, he didn't notice the sunlight glaring from two objects hidden in the rhododendrons. A used needle, and a brass shell casing. The Nissan peeled out of his front driveway, and its engine roared as he gunned through the suburbs. Row after row of beautiful houses and beautiful lawns whipped past. Houses and lawns he felt he was responsible for, for preserving, and for making possible in the first place. He cranked a hard left down Park Lawn Drive, and the houses changed over, first to industrial properties and warehouses, and then to construction sites. It had been a long time since he'd been out this way. The roads were all caked in dust, and for a long time he'd been trying to keep the Nissan clean. There was a kiosk at the entrance to the dump, but the guy was mostly never there, and today was no exception. The dirt lot out front was empty except for an old red pickup, and Jason parked haphazardly, slamming the door and striding through the chain-link gate with the wind billowing out of his motorcycle jacket. It was all quiet inside the fence. A couple of seagulls pried spoiled food loose from a stack of black plastic bags nearby, but otherwise he was alone. Or seemed to be. He didn't let his guard down. He felt like a Texas ranger arriving in some western ghost town. 
walking down silent streets but feeling the eyes on him from dark upper windows. It didn't take long for him to find the spot, the place where it had happened all those years ago. And there was nothing. A blank circle of hard-packed dirt, flanked on all sides by hillocks of landfill. No sign of any disturbance. He breathed a sigh of relief, felt the tension go out of his body, and was about to turn to leave. And then he saw the shoe. It was sticking out from the edge of one of those moldering heaps of soiled plastics and rotted furniture that ring the spot like megaliths at Stonehenge. Shoes weren't a rare sight of the dump, but they weren't usually attached to a leg. He felt his breath catch, and reached into his jacket for the concealed pistol. Taking a tentative step forward, he drew the gun and rounded the corner of the heap. Scotty. The gun almost slipped from Jason's fingers. He almost let out a sob. His friend was lying with his back propped up against an old spring mattress, mouth half open and filled with gamboge vomit the color of sodium lights in a strip mall parking lot. More vomit streaked down Scotty's chin and throat to stain the collar of his shirt. His sleeves were rolled up, and his hands lay open across his lap, almost in an attitude of prayer or meditation. Scotty. There was a small, dark scab at the vein of the crook of his elbow, and a cut-up tourniquet of bicycle inner tube lay close beside him. Was there a needle and spoon in the crannies of the trash heap? A torn packet of vitamin C powder? Jason couldn't see any. All he could see were the flies beginning to gather at the corner of his dead friend's mouth. He stepped back around the pile, and once the corpse was out of sight, it no longer seemed quite real to him. It couldn't be. Not Scotty, of all people. He didn't want to face it. He wanted to cry, to collapse, to become small, to be held. He wanted to call Jennifer, his mother, anybody. But he didn't. He wouldn't. He relied on him to be strong. He couldn't let himself be weak. Weakness was a luxury. It was one he'd never needed or had. And so he pushed his vulnerable feelings aside. He was a sheepdog. He was a man of action. He couldn't save Scotty now. All he could do was save the next person. He pulled out his phone and dialed a number. Hi, this is Jason Donahue. We met yesterday. I think we should talk. An hour later, he met Eli in his room at the Bethlehem Motel, just on the other side of the on-ramp outlet mall. The young man seemed happy to see him, and offered him motel coffee, which Jason refused. Jason sat down in the room's sole armchair. Eli sat in the swivel chair at the desk. The room was very gray. So, said Eli, I think we both know what this is about, said Jason. My brother? 
Eli seemed confused. I guess you could say that. Jason gave him the hard look and leaned forward. Like I said yesterday, I respect what you're doing. It's what I'd do in your position. It's just that I can't let you go on with it. Eli now seemed more than confused. Uncomfortable. He glanced toward the desk. Toward the phone? Or toward some weapon hidden in the upper desk drawer? Jason hadn't liked the look of him the first time. Now he felt vindicated. The kid was sneaky. A born liar. I should have known there'd be a price to pay someday. There always is. You can't have good things without sacrifice. But let me tell you something, Eli. I'm willing to make that sacrifice. Do you understand me? I... I really don't. Jason laughed and leaned back in the chair. His head hurt unbelievably. He topped up on the painkillers after the dump, but a slow star of pain still shone right where his forehead had hit the steering wheel. It didn't matter, though. Jason was a soldier, a warrior. He wasn't afraid of pain. Fine, Jason said. If that's how you want to play it, then how about this? I'll lay out what's going on. Then, when you get tired of trying to deny it, we can settle things like men. Okay? Settle things like men? I'm sorry, are, are you trying to threaten me for some reason? Jason leaned forward. I don't know. Am I? Are you? I don't know. Am I? I think you are. And I don't know why. And you're... You're making me uncomfortable. Oh, am I? Am I making you uncomfortable? Deal with it. You're in this as much as I am. Eli fell silent, staring at Jason like he was a wild animal. And maybe he was. And maybe he was fine with that. Wild animals got respect. You're here because you know what happened to your brother, and you want revenge. You left those syringes outside my house. You almost made me crash my car last night. You showed up at my house, tapping on the window all night, trying to scare me, trying to scare my family. Eli's face had gone pale, and he put up both of his hands. Please, I don't know anything about anything that you're talking about. I, I didn't do any of... Jason cut him off. And, he said, suddenly calm as he reached into his jacket and drew the gun. You murdered Scotty and tried to make it look like he'd done it himself. You injected him with that... that shit and then stood by and watched as he choked on his own vomit. You... Sick bastard, you fuck. Silence. Eli must have been a good actor because he looked terrified. Jason could see the abyss of the gun barrel reflected in his wide eyes. The young man's voice quavered. I don't even know who that is. Bullshit. Why? Whispered Eli. Why, why would I do any of this? Because... You know, said Jason. Somehow, I don't know how, I don't know who talked, or what you did to make them spill, or what. But somehow you found out about 
at night. Eli's features transformed from an expression of fear to one of horror, as the implication of what Jason had just said began to dawn on him. What night, he said. Jason sneered at him. The night we cleaned up this community. The night we all went down to the park lawn dump and used Will Roberts' excavator to dig a hole, then went around the neighborhood and gathered him up. Your skid brother, a pair of lizards from the truck stop, a couple junkies from down by the river. Nine or ten total. Most of them knew what was going on and just asked for the chance to shoot up one last time and go to sleep. And that was fine by us. When the rat offers to break its own neck, you don't argue with the rat. Probably most of them stopped breathing or choked on their puke in the back of that sprinter van before they even saw the hole. <laughs> Not your brother, though. He was scared to die. But he was too much of a shitty little skid coward to do anything about it. Just sniveled and cried and begged the whole time. Even after we tossed him into the hole with all the others. Even after we started shoveling dirt on top of him. I could still hear his mewling through the dirt until Bill drove the excavator back and forth over it a few times to tamp it down. After that... After that, it was quiet. That's the night I'm talking about. A silence fell. I know you want revenge for your brother, Eli. But it's for the best. Some people you just can't save. They're a threat to the community. They're... But he couldn't finish his sentence, because Eli screamed at him and leaped out of his chair. Before Jason could fire, Eli had pushed the gun aside with one hand and hit him in the face with the other. The chair fell backwards and they were knocked down sprawling, and even though Jason had three inches and sixty pounds on the kid, Eli was clawing and kicking and biting, and managed to get the better of the grapple. Get off me! Jason tasted blood. The world went white as Eli slammed his head into the floor and then scrambled for the gun. He got a hand on it, but Jason tackled him and the weapon went skittering across the floor as they both crashed back into the kitchenette. Jason tried to slam him into the wall, but the kid wriggled out, shoving him. Jason lost his feet and went down hard, clipping his head on the edge of the sink so that the world went white again, and then turned red as he crashed down to the floor awash in his own blood. Eli made a break for the door, but as luck would have it, Jason had landed next to the gun. He rolled over and pulled the trigger until the magazine was empty. Sixteen nine-millimeter rounds tore through the motel room, shattering windows and punching daylight into the pressboard door. One of them hit its target. A red halo formed on the front curtains. That's for Scotty, you son of a bitch! The police came a short time later, and Will Roberts was the first officer on the scene. Nothing to worry about, man, he said, sitting Jason down and sending his partner to grab them a coffee. Just self-defense. He came at you, you did what you had to do. Yeah, said Jason. Yeah, you're a good cop. Police association's not gonna let you go down for this. Paid administrative leave, tops. 
Yeah. Yeah, probably. You did a good thing today here, Jace. Real hero shit. He slept in his own bed that night, and slept an easy, untroubled sleep. At least, for a time. In the darkest hour, he was awakened by a tapping at the glass. Beside him, Jennifer lay deeply asleep, peaceful, unaware. He wondered if she knew about the night at Park Lawn, if that was a secret from the women of the community, or an open secret among them. He wondered if she knew what she was complicit in. Tap. 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 He climbed out of bed and went to the living room. The blinds were drawn on the big front window. That window where he'd stood only a few dozen hours earlier, watching a perfect autumn morning in the perfect little world he'd helped create. Tap. 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 He went to the window and swept aside the blinds. Dull orange light roared in from the street lamps outside, the street lamps of his perfect little kingdom. Outside, the yard was strewn with shattered glass and used sharps. And as he watched, the drying rhododendron flowers underneath the window seal peeled back on themselves and fresh needles extruded from the blooms like phalluses. And the bird, of course, was on the other side, so darkly silhouetted against the orange light that he could see his own face reflected in the shadow that its body cast against the glass. Tap. 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 He could bring himself to look at it more clearly than before, at the mismatched feet, the many people's arms that formed its legs and neck, at the fans of hands comprising lifeless wings along its greasy flank. It was filthy. It was dusty. It looked like it had just been dug up. And yet, its body hung together with such an elegance and symmetry and yet the sharp tips of its hypodermic crown shone like stars against the dark pines of his neighbor's yard. Tap. 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 As he watched, the glass began to crack, and the glistening tip of its beak slid through. And he reached up to touch it, This week's episode, Sharps, was written by Alexander Saxton and performed by Anthony Botello. The Wrong Station is made possible with the generous support of our listeners on Patreon. Thank you to Kate Leggy, Sam Holy Klein, and a very special thanks to Will Roberts for helping us keep the lights, well, off. You can also support us by leaving a rating and review on iTunes, or wherever it is you listen to The Wrong Station. The Wrong Station is co-produced by Alexander Saxton, Anthony Botello, and Jacob Duarte Spiel, with music composed and performed on the piano by Elan Citrin, and arranged for the viola and performed by Viola Schmidt. 
You can follow The Wrong Station on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and email us at therongstation at gmail.com. And until next time, thank you for listening.